0: Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. We're studying through this second book of the Bible. Moses wrote five books at the beginning of the Bible. This is the second one. It's about the great escape that God worked for them, for the people of Israel from their slavery, their 430 years of slavery in Egypt. And we are looking at the plagues, coming now to the fifth plague, and everyone tells the same story basically, and that is that we must trust in the Lord alone, that we must worship God alone. He's making this point especially to, especially to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but he's also making it to the children of Israel, that God alone is God, and God alone deserves our worship. He's making an additional point that's made very clear in this passage as it was made in the last passage in verse 23 of chapter eight. We're told, I will put a division between my people and your people. And we said that that word is literally, could literally be translated redemption. I will put a redemption between the Egyptians and the Israelites, I'll spare them from the plague. And he does the same here. And we understand that this redemption is ultimately Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says in the New Testament, we'll talk about it later, the Bible says that Jesus is the one, in Jude verse 5, Jesus is the one who led the people of Israel out of Egypt. This isn't just anticipating something that Jesus would do, this is something Jesus did. Jesus led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Jesus is the one who. Who guided them. Jesus is the one who protected them. Jesus is the one He put between the plague and the people. And so the same message comes to us again today, especially if you've been resisting it, especially if you're a skeptic that you must trust in the Lord alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and particularly if you're tempted to resentment This passage addresses that resentment, that cynicism, and turns you to a merciful and gracious God, even in the plague of the dying of the livestock. Let's look at verses 1 through 7 of Exodus chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Egypt so that, and the livestock of Israel so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, would you open our eyes that we would see the gospel even in this plague, the gospel of a redeeming Christ, good to us in all things, even in the things that are hard for us to understand now, even in the things that are bitter for us to undergo now. Enable us to celebrate, as we've already sung, the triumphs of Your grace. We pray in the strong name of Christ and for His sake and God's people said together, Amen. A couple of years ago, I returned to my alma mater, Christian College, and uh, for our homecoming and at the homecoming dinner, I sat next to a former professor of the college. He's retired now. He taught psychology. He taught in the science department, which meant I never had him. And uh, he taught psychology, which is another thing I was sure not to take, His psychology. But he was a very, he's a very dear man. And we were talking about a, a project that he had all of his general psychology students go through. Probably many of you have done it. As well, Intro to Psychology, Gen Psych, it was the infamous Rat Project. Now, the Rat Project is something that was developed in the 1930s, and as, uh, as I understand it, it goes something like this. You take some hungry rats and you put them in a maze, and eventually they demonstrate their home-finding ability. That is, they can work their way through the maze and eventually get to the end. But there's a way to speed up their getting to the end, and that is to put food at the end. And there's a way to make it even faster, and that is that if you can give them some rewards along the way with food, they'll make it through the maze even faster. And that's, that's what, it, what it proves, if you that if they can get to the end of a maze, and, that, and then if you put some food at the end with positive reinforcement there, they'll make it through even faster. Well, I asked, I told my professor my or this this friend who was a professor I said I have something to confess to you it's the sins of my friends and that is that uh, some of them cheated on that project I saw them take candy bars down there to the psych lab and they they would get their rats through there a little quicker because they'd put it right in front of their nose and they'd go right through the he's like that and he said I knew that I, I could tell immediately when a student was cheating on the project I saw how could you possibly do that? He said, I could tell by the way the rat behaved when you put him in the maze. After a time, I could tell if the student was cheating by the way the rat behaved. It, it, that if the student had been cheating, the rat would cower in the corner of the maze. That is, that's one way he was cheating, because the student was not just rewarding him with the candy bar all the way, but, but he, was, he was punishing the rat every time it made a wrong choice and eventually the rat shut down goes in the corner doesn't do anything else and then I could also tell if the rat had been led through with a candy bar because the rat was sleeping in the corner he wasn't going to move until you bring out the candy bar and then he'll go through the maze I could tell that the rat had been abused or indulged by looking at its behavior in the maze I said, because I want to use this in the future as a sermon illustration, I want to test something with you. (laughs) Are you telling me that even rats display that God wired the world to run by grace? He said, a godly man, that's exactly what I mean to say. God made the world to run by grace, even the animals. There's a way to speed up a rat through a maze. You could punish him, you can indulge him, but in the end, it's counterproductive. It's short-sighted. There's a way to, to get somebody to, to follow a, a, a warped version of Christianity. You can constantly threaten them with judgment. And you can get them off their duff and get them on the move in a hurry, but eventually it's counterproductive. You can also tell them that, that God indulges every sin and everything that they want and, and uh, that, 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 uh, that, that God provides health and wealth and prosperity. And you, you can get people moving in a hurry, but eventually it's counterproductive. What I want to invite you to do, especially if you're a skeptic, or if your faith is waning, I want you to think back. I want, you to, I want to invite you to investigate the church of Jesus Christ, not just this congregation, but every church that claims to be gospel-centered, gospel-believing, and, to in, and investigate the church throughout the centuries. I want you to investigate them and see if you don't find two things. See if you don't find that they worship a God who is represented in Jesus Christ, who has been incarnated in Jesus Christ, a God who disciplines out of mercy and who protects out of love. A gracious God who disciplines but only out of mercy and a God who protects always out of love. You see that in this passage, even this passage about livestock dying. A God who disciplines out of love. Look at verses 1-3. through 3. God comes to Moses and he comes, you see, we've, we've noticed this pattern. The second time, the second, there are three sets of three. And this is the second set of three. And, and the second time Moses comes into the palace. Of Pharaoh. The first time, the first set of each of the threes, he goes down to him by the river. Second time, he comes into him in, the, in, his, in his office, in his study, in his palace. And he warns him, Pharaoh, let my people go that they might serve me. And the implied invitation is, and you should need Kneel, too, to this great God, as future Egyptians will. I want you to let these people go that they might serve and worship me. Let them go. And if you don't let them go, I'm warning you, a plague is going to come. I'm going to raise my hand in judgment. It will fall with a severe plague on you. You say, that doesn't sound very gracious, but do you remember that this is the seventh time that God has provided a warning to Pharaoh? It's only five plagues, but it's the seventh time he's been warned. I'm warning you, Pharaoh, let my people go that they might worship me, that they might serve me. I'm warning you, if you don't do that, judgment's going to come. And that judgment is, the the, the severe judgment is going to be the death of the firstborn. There are ten plagues, yes, but nine warning plagues. 11 warnings altogether before they get before he gets to the 10th plague God is merciful in his warnings God always warns before he disciplines before he judges because he wants life to go well with you because he wants you to thrive he does not want anyone to perish he wants you to repent I can prove that to you from The Scripture, you don't have to turn there, but if you can get there quickly, Jeremiah chapter 18, it's about in the middle of the Bible, just past the Psalms, and Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah the prophet says, here is a principle, here is a principle that runs through all of Scripture and 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 is the, and conditions all of the judgments of Scripture. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7, God says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. now, on the other hand, if they, if I promise blessing and they, Return to their sin, I will judge it. But thus says the Lord, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you, but return every one of you from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Whenever I promise, he says, whenever I promise judgment or discipline, it is always conditioned by repentance. My goal is to drive you to repentance. My goal is to drive you to healing. It is to drive you to repairing There's a historical example of that in the Bible, in the book of Jonah. Remember, Jonah gets a a second chance to go to Nineveh. And God says, here's the message I want you to give to Nineveh. And Jonah really likes this message. It is 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Jonah says, "That, that message will preach. I'll go. I'll go preach that message. But the problem was, after just a few days of preaching, Nineveh repented everybody from the king down everybody repented and god did not destroy Nineveh. Jonah was mad about that that's another story but 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 the point is the illustration is that that god is true to his word if i promise destruction and I promise 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed but if the nation repents I will relent of the calamity I promised because my real purpose was not just to punish people I don't get delight in that my purpose was to drive them to repentance it was to drive them to trust me and to worship me that they might flourish you think about your life, I know that you think about uh, not only the trials of your life, but you think about the, the difficulties of this world. And, and some people who are dismissing Christianity are dismissing it because they see God only to be mean. He only does harsh things. In fact, uh, there's, 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 a, there's a movement now called New Atheism. And new atheism, is, as opposed to the old atheism, is, as, as I understand, is just nicer. You know, the old atheism was represented by Stalin and Nietzsche and, and Hitler and so forth. If you don't believe in a God, there are no rules, and then you can, you can do whatever you want to to people. But the new atheism, the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and, and uh, Christopher Hitchens and others, well, they want to say, no, we're moral atheists. We're, we're kind, loving atheists. We don't need Christianity to teach us how to be good. We're naturally good. We're instinctively, we're genetically good. And so they're new atheists. And, and, and one way they attack Christianity is to look at the Bible, look at the Old Testament especially, and they say, look, that, that, that's a God, R- Richard Dawkins says, used to say, that is a God who's bloodthirsty and xenophobic. He's killing people all over the place. He tells people to go into whole to cities and wipe them out, even women and children. There's a great book produced by an Old Testament professor named uh, Paul Capon called Is God a Moral Monster? Is God a Moral Monster? And he goes through all of those difficult texts and he takes on Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens as he did and as he's done in his career, personally uh, debating them. And he says, "You, you, you take God to be a moral monster, you take him to be cruel because you misunderstand these texts. And he unpacks each of those texts as they were... As they were, as as we have insight into them archaeologically and 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 in a scholarly way. And for instance, those those passages that are hard to understand, like go into a go into a city, and he says this six times in the Old Testament. It's 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 and do and do harem. It is a, it is total destruction. Kill all the animals. Kill all the the women and children. That's the way that it reads literally, but. Paul Capon reper- re- demonstrates that that, that that was a manner of speaking in the ancient Near East. He shows other, other secular pieces of literature saying the same thing, that those, those pronouncements of total destruction were on fortified cities. They were on forts, not on, on towns where civilians lived, but on forts where the military people lived. And the women and children were not liter- literally women and children, they were, they, were, they were, it was a way of mocking those who would be overtaken, that they would not be able to resist any more than women and children could resist warriors. So he said, going into those fortified embattlements that are ultimately run by the devil to keep the people of Israel out of Canaan and to sponsor the kind of brutal and cruel and bloodthirsty worship the Canaanites practiced and, and and, and destroy the strongholds so that my people might enter there and so that the people there may see a God who has laws and wonder at them and say, what kind of nation has laws like that? You see, if, if they had really wiped out all the women and children, they wouldn't have, they, he wouldn't have needed to say later, don't, don't intermarry with the women when you get there. The point is that, that when you look carefully and skillfully at every passage of Scripture, you, even the tough parts, you ultimately have to conclude God is merciful. Even in the harshest, the apparently harshest parts of the Bible, even the killing of livestock, even the pronouncement of war, is ultimately to demonstrate that God is a God of mercy. He loves us even more than we love ourselves even to the point of saying I will not let you do that because to continue to practice that, to continue to worship in that way is only to to reap destruction on yourself. Some of you are some of you perhaps are embittered against God now because you say this discipline that he's bringing in my life or this difficulty in my life, this can't be from the hand of a good God. Because this thing that I had that's been taken away from me, as it was so good, it, it was perfect, and you've taken it away, and that can't be good. It doesn't mean that everything that you're going through is because of some specific sin. It doesn't mean that. But I will say that repentance is always appropriate in every situation because repentance is just this. Repentance is turning to the Lord. Even in those, the, the suffering that has been brought on you by no fault of your own, it's always appropriate to turn to the Lord. It doesn't mean that the sufferings come because, necessarily because you've sinned, but it is always appropriate to turn to Jesus and say, I trust you. No matter what, however dark this situation is, however grim it is, however impossible it is to understand, I trust you. Here is is something you can bank on from Scripture. There may be a thousand reasons, there may be a million reasons you are suffering, but one of them can never be that God is cruel. No matter what reason you're suffering or you're being disciplined, this is always true. God is good. No matter what, how you're suffering, how you're being disciplined, this is always true. God is merciful. And whatever is being given in your life or taken away from your life is because God is good and because God is merciful and because God wants life to go well with you. Now, well, let me give you a silly illustration. I thought about this a couple of days ago when I was mowing my grass. I have two dogs that are ridiculous. They're very strange. Everything they do is strange. They sleep on their back with their feet straight up in the air, all kinds of strange things. The more my wife observes the dogs and me, she says, you're just the same. One of the things, but, but my dogs always love to have fun, and the puppy especially loves to have fun. No matter what, he wants to have fun, and the funnest thing for him is fetch, fetch with a ball. So you always, no matter where you are, you hear something plump, drop by your feet, and it's something to throw for him to fetch. And the, and the thing he loves most is to, to come while I'm mowing the grass, pushing the push mower, and he drops the ball right in front of the mower. <laughs> he knows I have to stop, I have to turn off the mower, I have to get the ball, throw it he says, see, it works every time. He comes, brings it, drops it, stop. So unless my yard is going to look like this, I have to stop. He's not afraid of the mower. In fact, if I let him, he would push the ball under the the deck of the mower and he would stick his snout under the mower to get the ball. He has no fear of the mower whatsoever. But he's terrified of the blower. (laughs) Terrified. That wind he knows is going to kill him. So I crank up the blower, he runs and cowers in the sand, but he's not afraid of the mower. Now I had just a limited amount of time to mow the grass the other day, so I locked him in the backyard, I mowed the front. He he was so mad, he pouted all day, just pouted, mad, that I wouldn't let him drop the ball in front of the mower. Now what if, what if I let my dog determine what is good and what is bad? what is harmful and what is safe. What if I said, okay, okay, Gus, you're right. You're right, mower good, blower bad. Stick your nose under the mower, get the ball and run from the blower. It's ridiculous, right? And yet, it's the way we treat God. This is good, you must give it to me and you're bad if you take it away. But God in his infinite wisdom knows what is best for us. And we may pout, we may be self-pitiful, we may be cynical, but God will always and only give us what is most merciful for us. Look at Christianity. Look at the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages. You'll find this, they are people who live with a God proven in Jesus Christ to be merciful even in his discipline. A second point we, we can observe in the passage is that, that uh, Jesus represents a God who always protects in his love. Verses 4 to 7 the Lord will make a distinction, the Lord will put a redemption between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Israel of egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of israel shall die now i said earlier in jude verse 5 jude is a is the second to last book of the bible just a little book we, it doesn't even have chapters it's just in verses and it, and in verse 5 of that book it says jesus led his people out of israel out of egypt Jesus led his people out of Egypt. The Bible says, the New Testament says that Jesus was in the Old Testament. The New Testament says that Jesus is the one who who led the people. Well, we thought it was Moses. Well, it is Moses, but it is Jesus ultimately. The second person of the Godhead is always involved in works of redemption. And so it is Jesus who stands between his people and the plague God put Jesus between the judgment that fell on the unbelieving Egyptians and them. God always protects in his his love and remember what we've been learning is that that God is demonstrating that there there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved, by which you can be protected. That all the gods of Egypt are false and they're ineffective. Why would God then attack the the, the livestock, because the Egyptians worshipped a god named Apis, that was their big bull god. There's was a temple with a big bull a statue of a bull in it, and then and then uh, th- then there was a there was a real live bull chained next to the altar. And so they would come and worship that mighty that mighty god represented by that bull. The problem is that the bull kept dying. You know, he lived a few years. They dragged that bull out and bring another one in. Now, don't you think it would have dawned on them eventually, if this is God, why does he keep dying on us? Why do we have to drag him out? Why do we have to get another one bring him in? And he dies again. It's because he's not a God. And that's what God is saying here. I am the one who controls the life and death of all beings on the face of the earth, even bulls. I am God alone. You must trust him. I'm the only one who can protect. Your livestock, you can't even protect your livestock. You can't even protect your sacred cattle. They die because I'm the giver of life and the giver of death. By my hand, he says, by my hand, I will strike you down. Well, by God's hand too, he protects us. The hand of God that brings discipline is the hand of God that brings protection. This is the hand that delivered them from Egypt. This is the hand that led them through the wilderness. This is the hand that protected them from the heat of the sun during the day. The hand that protected them from marauders at night. This is the righteous right hand that David talks about leading the people of Israel. This is the hand. These are the hands that were nailed to the cross. These are the hands that hold you. And Jesus says, not only are you held in my hand, but my hand is held by the Father. Jesus protects us from all of our enemies, even the pharaohs of this world, and it's proven again in Jesus Christ. Think with me this way, just think at how the whole story unfolds in Scripture. Okay, Jesus is the one we know from Jude verse 5, Jesus is the one who led the people of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. We didn't see him. He wasn't mentioned by name, but he was there apparently. And, and that, that redemption from, from Egypt is something that was, that was critically important for the people of Israel all through their ages. They knew if God could deliver them from that enemy, he could deliver them from every enemy, and they would know that their Messiah had come when he delivered them from their great Egypt, the Egypt of this world. So think about how Jesus came into the world. There was another Pharaoh, but his name was Herod. And and Herod had, had the people of God in bondage then the Magi showed up one day. The Magi had come to him having been led by the hand of God. They said They said they'd come there by watching the stars. Well, we know from the Bible that the stars are his handiwork. God manipulated the stars in some way to lead the Magi to Herod to say, we've come to see him who was born king of the Jews. We've come to worship him. Herod was incensed. He wanted to be the king of the Jews. He demanded that every child two years old and under was put to death. But Joseph and Mary escaped with Jesus to where? Egypt. And then they brought him back when it was safe from Egypt. And Matthew says that was to fulfill the prophecy. Out of Egypt I have brought my son. What in the world does that mean? It was that God was saying, here he is. I, the, the same Jesus who brought you out of Egypt whom you could not see, I have now taken into Egypt and brought him out, and you can see him. It's the same one. And the same one who brought you out of Egypt is the same one who's going to bring you out of this captivity to the Romans and, and this captivity that is that is sponsored by the devil for this whole world not just the earthly pharaohs i am delivering you from the great pharaoh from the devil himself i'm delivering you through this christ from all of eternity he has existed as the one who protects and delivers it does not matter what you're going through It does not matter what you're suffering by the hand of someone else or by this broken world or discipline for your turning away from him. It does not matter. This is always true. Jesus is working in your life out of mercy. And Jesus is the one who can protect you, even from judgment. What must you do? Increase your faith? Believe better? Master some formula? No, just turn to Jesus. I used to spend a lot of time around friends who were Lutherans. I studied in their, in their seminary when I was in St. Louis and they taught me a, a lot. Lutheran theology is slightly different from Reformed theology. They're not contradictory, but they're, they're a little bit different. And my Lutheran friends told, taught me something very important. They said, you know, uh, here is the difference between us, you Reformed people, and us Lutherans. And one held up a pen like this. And he said, let's say the pen is Jesus and the grip is your faith. Here's the difference between us. You reformed people tend to focus too much on this grip and not enough on Jesus. You think, is the grip just right? Does the grip have five points to it? (laughs) Is the grip decently and in order? Is the grip, grip unwavering? We focus on the grip, we focus on our faith. I've gotta have more faith. here's the focus, Jesus. And he says, even if it's like a mustard seed, even if it's that much, just turn to me. I'm always merciful, and I'll protect from all judgment. Turn to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your persistence, Your perseverance in pursuing us, the one who never gives up, the hound of heaven. We pray that You would conquer us, convince us afresh You are merciful, You are good all the time. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. Amen.